This is Africa Digest. Seventeen oh one Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. We're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. And uh, later you'll be able to find us on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet as well. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Joanani Tulo as well as Nusikhe Zuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zimbabwe's Opposition Movement of Democratic Change, the MDC, led by Nelson Chamisa, rather, orders all its uh, legislators to pull out of Parliament immediately. COVID-19 is having an unprecedented negative impact on global trade and the transport and infrastructure sector. And 85 juveniles have been released from detention in South Sudan to decongest prisons. Right now, though, let's uh, cross on over to the news desk. Here is Jualani Tulo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good afternoon. The Africa Center for Disease Control has praised the African Union leadership in its role for coordinating the continent's response to COVID-19. Dr. John Nkagesong says AU Chair, South African President Soro Ramaphosa and the Commission Chair, Musa Faki Mohamed, have ensured that member states contribute to the collective effort of fighting the outbreak. Africa has over 51,000 cases of the coronavirus with 2,006 fatalities. Nkagesong says is through political will, Africa's response has been exemplary. And we are concerned that that, uh, the head of states have met in sessions to discuss this extensively for the last couple of weeks, almost on a weekly basis, uh, speaks today the strong political ownership, leadership and will that the the continent is uh, is paying to this crisis. They are taking this as a serious health crisis, a serious security crisis and a serious economic crisis. So these are all lessons that other parts of the the world can, can learn from Africa. The World Health Organization has cautioned people to continue taking preventative measures against COVID-19, despite claims that Madagascar may have found a cure. Other African governments have been talking about integrating the Madagascan solution into their own campaigns. The WHO has invited Madagascar to take their purported cure through the necessary clinical trials. There is a coordinated solidarity trial currently underway, testing other potential solutions for the coronavirus. The WHO 
Zimbabwe's Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Matsiri Somweti. And we are concerned that touting this product as a preventive measure might that make people feel it's safe not to do the other things. So we'd like to emphasize very much that uh, whatever is being done with this product, people must continue to, to implement the measures for protecting themselves. Moiti says the biggest concern with Madagascar's herbal remedy is that it may give a false sense of security. And we are concerned that touting this product as a preventive measure might that make people feel it's safe not to do the other things. So we'd like to emphasize very much that uh, whatever is being done with this product, people must continue to put in measures to implement the measures for protecting themselves. A German man facing child sex abuse and trafficking allegations has died in prison in Uganda's capital, Kampala. Bernard Glazer, who was suffering from skin cancer, had been granted bail and leave to travel for treatment by Uganda's High Court on Wednesday. He was carried into court on a stretcher for the hearing. However, his lawyer says he had to remain in detention as he tried to raise funds for bail. Glazer was remanded in custody in February last year to await trial for several counts of aggravated child sex abuse, human trafficking and indecency decent assault. The crimes are alleged to have been committed at a children's home he set up with his wife on an island in Lake Victoria. And finally, 55 people have died in Rwanda in heavy rains, causing floods and landslides. The government says it is assessing the damage in order to help the victims and repair infrastructure. Citizens who live on mountain slopes have been urged to move to areas less prone to disasters. The East African nation has in recent weeks experienced major downpours that have led to landslides that flattened houses on mountain slopes. Last week, eight people also died in heavy rains. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tu. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Zimbabwe's Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, the MDC, led by Nelson Chamisa, has ordered all its legislators to pull out of parliament immediately. This comes after leader of a uh, splitter group led by Tokozani Kupe recalled four MPs from Chamisa's party from the August House. In March, the Supreme Court ruled that the rise of Chamisa after the death of Mongan Tsangarai in February 2018 was illegal. More from our correspondent based in Harare, Zimbabwe, Simon Muchemwa. The Zimbabwean Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, has been rocked in a political controversy regarding its leadership. This follows the recall of four members of parliament, MPs from the National Chamisa-led MDC Alliance, by another opposition leader, Tokozani Kupe, from parliament. Douglas Monzora, one of the contending members of the leadership, Rengo, wrote the letter to parliament, creating the confusion that is currently obtaining. According to Monzora, his decision is based on the Supreme Court ruling in March that invalidates Nelson Chamisa's succession of the late Mogen Changrai in 2018. While addressing the media in the capital on Thursday, Jobsikala, MDC vice chairperson, declared war on the ZANU-PF-led government. All MDC alliance MPs will forthwith, forthwith suspend all participation in parliament and disengage from all platform in, in platforms in which the party has to interact with ZANU-PF pending consultations with the relevant constituencies of the party, that is the electorate, and Zimbabweans at large on the decision for a total withdrawal from parliament. The party reiterates that only the MDC alliance has the power to lawfully recall or deploy, redeploy its members of parliament 
elected under his ticket, no one else has the mandate to do so except only the MDC allies. Meanwhile, a huge debate has ensued regarding the interests of the individual MPs and if they will abide and indeed pull out of parliament. This is a repeat of the 2005 scenario when the then Secretary General Washman Nguwe left the party and was followed by a number of MPs. It would appear the Noson Chamisa-led party is not so sure if all MPs will listen to them, hence Jobscala responded that individual decisions will be made by each legislator. This is because most of the legislators have just been issued with car loans and community development funds which will require members to attend parliamentary sessions. Sikala had this to say. Individual interests are superseded by the, the common interests of the people of Zimbabwe. So the decision that we are going to take will be oblivious of what the people of Zimbabwe want. Uh, they are not interested whether the MP is a motor vehicle or not. That is secondary to them. The struggle of today is not being fought on the interest of the member of, of individual acquiring motor vehicles or, or having allowances like what you are trying to put it. Uh, universal internal agreement is only a concept that has been enjoyed only on human rights. That human rights, is, uh, human rights issues have got a universal character. Not the issue of struggle. The issue of struggle is that uh, people are entitled to their own opinions. Those who would not want to move out of parliament are entitled to do that. But uh, our call is for the cause of the people of Zimbabwe, not individual interests of individual MPs. Sikala Feda announced the expulsion of a number of party members, including Monzora, for the role they played in the disturbance of the sanity in the MDC. The MDC led by Noson Chamisa is arguing that they contested elections as an alliance called MDC Alliance, of which another party cannot recall its MPs. According to Sikala, the offense they committed is to refuse to partner ZANU-PF led by President Emerson Nangagwa in the political coalition called Pollard soon after the 2018 elections. Sikala explained, This alliance is noted that Morgan Komich Douglas Monjura and the last Mzuri have decided to cooperate with ZANPM and the state. They therefore have expelled themselves from the MDC alliance and are forthwith relieved of their positions and membership in the party. They are further withdrawn from all position, positions to which they had been deployed by the party. Replacements have been made and shall be announced in due course. The party resolved to take all the necessary steps to recover all the gains of the people's democratic struggle. The Supreme In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. United States President Donald Trump appears to have contradicted himself and senior administration officials in a series of tweets explaining that the coronavirus task force would continue. A day after his vice president indicated the group could wrap up its work around the end of May. The president earlier indicated the task force would take on a different form as the emphasis shifts to reopening the country's economy. This as New York's governor warned that some states were making a mistake by reopening despite rising infection rates in contravention of federal guidelines for phase one reopenings. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The tweets from the president clarifying his administration's position that because of the task force's success, it will continue indefinitely with a focus on safety and opening up the country again, in addition to vaccines and therapeutics. 
a day earlier. The president in his own words. I think that as far as the task force, Mike Pence and the task force have done a great job, but we're now looking at a little bit of a different form, and that form is safety and opening, and we'll, uh, we'll have a different group probably set up for that. Are you saying mission accomplished? No, no, not at all. The mission accomplishes when it's over. The doctor is saying that there might be a recurrence of coronavirus in the fall. Why? Can you just explain why is now the time to wind down that task force? Well, because we can't keep our country closed for the next five years. You know, you could say there might be a recurrence, and there, there might be. And, you know, most doctors or some doctors say that it, it will happen, and it'll be a flame, and we're going to put the flame out. States have started phased reopenings, ignoring federal guidelines for a two-week decline in case numbers, hospitalizations and deaths. While leaked White House documents project cases could rise by 200,000 and deaths by 3,000 per day by June. You have states that are opening where you still are in the incline. I think that's a mistake. Listen to Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York State. There's a chart today that was published by the New York Times. You look at what's happening in New York. Yes, our, our line is going down. Our number of cases is going down. We have turned the corner and we're on the decline. You take New York out of the national numbers, the numbers for the rest of the nation are going up. They are going up. To me, that vindicates what we're doing here in New York, which says, follow the science, follow the data. Despite mitigation efforts, more than 230 people died in his state in the last 24 hours, as authorities now focus on who specifically is dying, and the data is mystifying. 18% of the people came from nursing homes, less than 1% came from jail or prison, 2% came from the homeless population, 2% from other congregate facilities. But 66% of the people were at home, uh, which is shocking to us. Disproportionately older, but by the way, older starts at 51 years old. The city this week taking the unprecedented step of shutting down the subway system overnight, a likely prelude to bigger changes as the largest mass transit system in the country works to rebound from a pandemic that has slashed ridership. City Transit Vice President Sally Lebrera. We're also looking at different ways of doing this cleaning and disinfecting. We're trying out antimicrobial treatments to keep surfaces virus-free longer. We are looking at ultraviolet light technology that can immediately eradicate viruses. We're looking at electrostatic sprayers and using foggers to improve the productivity and increase the speed with which we're working so that we can minimize the disruption to customers. We're trying out all of these different techniques and we'll be deploying them over the course of this initiative. Any future reopening of the nation's most populous city would have immediate implications on public transit for its six million daily commuters. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. COVID-19 is having an unprecedented impact on global trade and transport as well as infrastructure sectors. Supply chains are being disrupted. The movement of goods and people nationally and internationally are being restricted in a way not previously seen. Overall, this has put an increased pressure on the transport sector. More from Mapefo Ano 
Frimpong, CEO at the Transport Education Authority, uh, Transport Education Training Authority, rather, in South Africa, Tata. If one look at the different modes of transport, the one that has been impacted greatly is the aviation sector, uh, especially as it relates to airlines. Uh, and the moving of passengers within the borders of South Africa and outside the borders of South Africa, even level five and level four, except for repatriation of um, South Africans that are from other countries, there's absolutely nothing happening there. So the impact is being felt greatly. The second uh, sector that has been affected is the maritime sector, as it relates to um, people getting on cruise ships. Uh, Cruise ships do have a lot of job opportunities, and because none of them are now allowed to operate, that also has been affected. The third industry that is affected is the taxi industry in this way. The taxi industry for local uh, taxi operators, it has been affected by the reduced hours that they uh, uh, operating, but it's also affected by the volumes of passengers that they usually op- uh, uh, transport. Now, currently, even though they are transporting 70% of essential service workers, they are not transporting to the extent that they usually are used to. The other facet of the taxi industry that is affected is long-distance taxi operators because of the prohibitions of interprovincial travel as well as cross-border travel between the South Africa borders and SADC region, that industry has come to a grinding halt. Commuter rail, except for how train that has opened a little bit, is also affected, as well as the bus operators. There are two types of bus operators. Bus operators that operate within and outside the borders of South Africa, like the long-distance taxis, are affected. But there's also a section of the small bus operators uh, that take children to school, what we call scholar transport. Because schools have been closed, they are no longer transporting anyone. So that industry as well has been affected quite badly. Now, what would you say are the skills that will be required going forward in the sector based on the challenges uh, that the sector is facing? The most critical one are digital skills, the ability to uh, work on a digital platform, the ability to even think outside uh, the box, the ability to manage change, uh, the ability to operate within uh, an environment that is unpredictable, an environment that is uncertain, an environment uh, where it is complex and where things are changing at an incredible speed. So if you can't operate computers and you are not able to use technology to the best of your ability, irrespective of whether you are in any of the sectors, be it the taxi the taxi industry, be it the bus industry, be it even maritime and even aviation, going forward, you would need to be able at least to operate a computer. Some of the skills uh, of the future that we are seeing um, in terms of the World Economic Forum, it has been identified that uh, in the world globally, before 
COVID-19 came, that there are skill sets that are important to have. One of the most important ones is the ability to be flexible in terms of cognitive uh, flexibility, being able to negotiate, uh, even though going forward, we know that we are going to use computers, we're going to use digital devices, we're going to use uh, artificial intelligence and visual reality. The reality is robots by their nature have to be given input by a human being. So whoever works with computers and brings in new technologies should be able to have interpersonal skills, to talk to clients, to negotiate with their teams and to negotiate with others so that they can best understand that technology that is being utilized. Uh, Skills that are usually called soft skills, like service orientation, being able to anticipate the needs of your clients, and, and also being able to come up with tangible solutions, being able to translate this into product offerings, being able to look at data, being able to analyze and come up with solutions uh, that inform your decision-making is one of the skills of the future that we need. And emotional intelligence, of course, being able to persuade people, being able to manage your frustrations, being able to take the lead uh, is also one of the top skills. And, And if you are emotionally intelligent, of course, you'll be able to collaborate, you'll be able to communicate with others using platforms that you are not used to. People management, even though computers are coming, we will still need people management. Creativity, we also need creativity. Critical thinking and complex uh, problem solving are the, those skills, are those that in the future are going to be in demand. Now, the good thing about all of the skills is that they can be honed over time. They can be developed. Nobody is born with all of the skills in them, but with the application of more knowledge and more learning and new ways of doing things, you can develop those skills. And that was Mape for Ano Frimpong, CEO at the Transport Education Training Authority in South Africa, and she was on the line to Ntlantla Matlangu. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly, as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition. As South Africans head towards the end of the first week of Stage 4 and more employees return to work, a lot of complexity still hang over the heads of employers. A key issue is protecting vulnerable employees. To speak to us about this uh, and some of these complexities is employment and health and safety expert Diesel Lowe from Weber Wenzel. Diesel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As a starting point, the Level 4 lockdown regulations uh, provide that employees who are able to work from home should continue to do so. And this includes vulnerable employees. So as far as, you know, the possibilities and as far as possible, employers must allow employees to continue working from home during this Level 4 lockdown, right? 
Yes, that's 100% correct. And then getting to what you mentioned about vulnerable employees, put special measures in place for vulnerable employees who return to work. All right. Now, the regulations do not expressly define vulnerable employees, but they do provide that the employer must put in place special measures for employees with known or disclosed health conditions and employees who are over the age of 60. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. You're 100% correct. Um, That is what the regulations provide, but without providing a definition of, of who vulnerable employees are. They give us clues to say that special measures must be put in place for employees who return to work who are older than 60, firstly, and secondly, employees with comorbidities um, who have disclosed such health conditions or comorbidities to their employer before. And interestingly, Samora, that the regulations also do not say what these special measures are. And that is basically left to the employer to determine uh, on a risk based approach. So every employer must conduct a risk assessment of its work environment and then put measures in place fitting these environments. Now, uh, vulnerable employees are not prohibited from returning to the workplace under the regulations. What implications can this have? Well, the implications are that they can be called back to work like any other employee who are younger than 60 or who do not have comorbidities. Um, The implication, though, as you've said, is once they are called back to work and and these um, factors are known to the employer, special measures must be implemented. It's interesting that the requirement to put special measures in place, we find it in the regulations under measures to promote physical distancing when employees return to work. So it it will probably relate, these special measures will relate to increased physical distancing. It could include things like screens between desks, instead of just masks, maybe face visors as well, separate entrances, separate ablutions, um, and possibly increased screening. Uh, as determined on, by that risk-based assessment to be done by employers. And uh, if the employer requires vulnerable employees to return, as you said, that they can just be uh, you know, asked to return, what needs to be in place? What special measures need to absolutely be in place? Yeah, um, as we've just discussed, the regulations do not actually say what they are. And every employer must determine that after conducting a risk assessment of its working area. So in an office environment, it's obviously a bit easier because you can move your office desks and workstations and so forth around, or you can put up screens and and the like. In um, in working environment where this is not always possible and social distancing is not always possible, increased PPE could be provided, for instance. Um, so, so face visors and not just face masks, which is in any event required in terms of the regulations. We would also advise that a conversation be had with employees, vulnerable employees who return to work to make them aware of the increased risk of what could happen should they contract COVID-19. Um, and then, of course, where possible, increased screening for these employees. 
And lastly, the employer needs to be careful in these special measures uh, it chooses to implement as if they disadvantage vulnerable employees only. This may open the employer to claims for unfair discrimination, right? Yes, and that's a very important point. Um, If employers simply use age and the existence of comorbidities to not call employees back to work, because we know that the economy is opening in phases, and employers and and companies do not open 100%. Um, The mining um, industry, for example, can ramp up to 50%. Other um, industries may ramp up to a third, and employers therefore have to select who they call back to work and who not. So if they simply exclude employees over 60 and employees with comorbidities, that could lead to unfair discrimination claims. The regulations do not prevent these groups of employees from being called back to work. It only requires that special measures must be implemented when they are indeed called back to work. All right, Lizel, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And that was employment and health and safety expert Liesl Lowe from Weber Wenzel. Right now, though, it's uh, 17.29 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the news desk where Shualani Tullo is standing by to let us know what is happening in the latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good afternoon. The Africa Centre for Disease Control has praised the African Union leadership and its role for coordinating the continent's response to COVID-19. The World Health Organization has cautioned people to continue taking preventative measures against COVID-19 despite claims that Madagascar may have found a cure. And finally, a German man facing child sex abuse and trafficking allegations has died in prison in Uganda's capital, Kampala. For Channel Africa, I'm Jorani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The short-form video platform TikTok has announced that it will donate 10 million US dollars to Gavi, the vaccine alliance, which will go towards supporting efforts to both routine vaccinations against existing infectious diseases in Africa, as well as future deployment of COVID-19 vaccines. The contribution will be matched by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, bringing the total package support to 20 million US dollars. To discuss this further, Zukwana Miso spoke to Mari Anga uh, Saraka Yao, the Gavi Managing Director of Resource Mobilization, Private Sector, Partnerships and Innovative Finance. Yes, we are very pleased with this important donation that will help not only assist with uh, the impact, the potential catastrophic impact on immunization programs of the current COVID-19 crisis, but also help us to deploy uh, the vaccines once it's developed. You know, at the core of the Gavi public-private partnership model is actually working with global innovators such as TikTok. Gavi has helped immunize more than 760 million children over the past 20 years. And this has been particularly thanks to the unique combination of expertise from our global public sector and health partners and the business acumen, creativity, and entrepreneurs of the private sector. 
And it's really by leveraging actually the private sector resources, technology and agility that we are best positioned. What we see working with, um, with companies like TikTok or from logistics, financial services or social media is that we are able to support health workers and the health force and the communities to, um, to you know, deploy the immunization services and contain the outbreak. We have to remember that vaccines don't deliver themselves and that we do need a whole system. And it's actually using this system with our private sector partner that can really help us go mm, further. Mm. Now, why do you think, Marie, that it's important uh, to really ensure the continuity of these existing vaccines, um, especially amid the disruption of this latest pandemic? It is very important because routine immunization is really the bedrock of any health services. And in a sense, defending this, then we can prevent other outbreaks. You know, when we saw the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, in the end, when we look at a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, more, more people died of measles or other infectious disease than Ebola. I think it's like 2.5 people, more people died from measles than Ebola. So in, indeed, so it's important to have these, um, to, to uh, contain and to have the first line of defense for these infectious disease mm. and actually prepare for, the, prepare for the deployment of the COVID-19 and then strengthen the system. So you see it's all linked because immunization services really work as a first line of defense, having our workforce ready, supporting the health workers, having the, the systems in place, having routine immunization because that's really what prevents from, from disease of every day. And that's quite, that's very important. And then being able also to, by, the, by the same token to fight outbreaks. Mm-mm. Now, Marie, of course, during this time, we've seen um, a lot of, of companies and, and entities coming together to really try and make a difference during um, this time of this COVID-19 pandemic. But what are the plans for Gavi um, and TikTok um, for the long term in terms of assisting um, with the health and safety of Africans? Well, we hope that we, we can have a longer term plan. As I said I mean, this, we view this partnership as the beginning to help, in a sense, uh, tackle the immediate response, some of the emergencies. But most importantly, from our experience with other partners, you know, we want to build a long-term partnership because TikTok as a media platform and social media platform can actually help uh, also provide the right information about vaccines, about when to go and do it, about providing the right type of information, which is very important, and also to help, uh, you know, support the communication and the dissemination of such information so that routine immunization can take place. So we do, we we are very hopeful, especially in Africa, as you know, um, the majority of Gavi-supported countries Mm. are in Africa. And what we see with the the COVID-19 is that we see that, for example, this year, we already have 35 campaigns that are going to be delayed or suspended. You know, we have 13 vaccine introductions. 
And, and unfortunately, these are important introductions like typhoid, rotavirus, which is against diarrhea. It's one of the biggest um, killer of children yeah, yeah. or polio or measles that is extremely contagious. We are hopeful that with such a partnership, we, we are able also to uh, use the unique expertise of TikTok, especially in social media platform, to communicate the, the right information. Well, for people who'd like to learn more about the efforts that you're putting in during this time, how do they do that? Um, please do share your webpage and uh, any um, social media um, accounts that uh, people can follow to gain more info. Of course, Gavi.org on the, the webpage and of course, Gavi, uh, the Vaccine Alliance on uh, on the social media on all of them and we'll be very keen to provide more information and of course most importantly you know what's important is that we are in a currently in a fundraising drive uh, for our next strategic period 2021-2025 and as such you know um, the government of the united kingdom is hosting a virtual event on june 4th in the afternoon it's a global vaccine summit, and I think it's very appropriate given the times we are in. So we hope that you will be able to follow and connect and provide support. So that will be really critical. And that was Marie Anga Sarakayao, Gavi Managing Director of Resource Mobilization, Private Sector Partnerships and Innovative Finance. And she was on the line from Geneva in Switzerland to Zekonomiso. According to the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, 85 juveniles have been released from detention in South Sudan to decongest prisons as a COVID-19 prevention measure. The children were handed over to their parents or other legal guardians today. This, in like in many countries, uh, prisons in South Sudan are overcrowded with inadequate access to hygiene services, nutrition as well as health care, conditions that are highly conducive to the spread of diseases like COVID-19. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by UNICEF Chief of Child Protection in South Sudan, Jean Libby. Jean, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, thank you very much uh, for contacting me. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about the release of the juveniles and how it came about? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, uh, You know, this is a combined uh, work that has been done uh, with the South Sudan Judiciary, the Ministry of Gender, Child, and Social Welfare, the UN Mission in South Sudan, and UNICEF. We have been able to advocate together uh, for the release of 85 children, all boys, that have been in detention. Uh, they were mostly called for minor offenses. And as you know, and as you said it just before, uh, it is very difficult in overcrowded places to keep physical distance like it is required to avoid contamination by COVID-19. And so therefore, uh, the South Sudan judiciary accepted uh, to move out of detention with 85 children. They have all been handed over to their guardians. And now uh, our social workers uh, that are, have been trained by UNICEF and are supported by UNICEF are following up with social work, psychosocial first aid, uh, basic psychosocial, 
and also for some that will require economic aid uh, and uh, schooling when school will reopen uh, so that they don't fall again in conflict with law. And does this mean that juveniles are now completely free and what were some of the offences? You know, I tell you, uh, most of the offences are really small offences due to poverty, uh, uh, like uh, stealing. Uh, but there are still 11 uh, children that are uh, on trail uh, because they have uh, uh, committed uh, more serious offences. But, you know, I cannot tell you much about this due to the uh, privacy uh, that is required uh, uh, on these cases. And I, remi- I remind you that we are talking about children and we have to be very careful uh, for any uh, information we give about them uh, due to their future that is still possible. Uh, because, you know, children are mostly victims uh, and they are involved in this kind of offenses uh, not because they want to do it but uh, or not because they are bad guys but uh, because of the environment that is very poor and that leads them to that kind of offenses over and according to UNICEF, the country lacks a juvenile justice system which considers the special needs of children in contact with the law. Elaborate on this challenge, please. Yes, you know, the place of a, of a child is definitely not in detention. And South Sudan has done a lot of progress for that. And we are always working with the Ministry of Gender children and social welfare to find ways to avoid children to be incarcerated. Uh, The best way is uh, to treat uh, with children and with children's offenses is to find ways to have diversion programs. So, you know, some programs where they learn and they understand and regret what they have done. And we have still a lot to build for that. And this is what our social workers will do now in following up the cases, in working with the families, in working with the children to counsel them and to bring them somehow in the right way back. And uh, we understand that you, that the UNICEF will continue to advocate for the immediate release of new cases as they become known. Tell us more about the ongoing efforts and concerns that you still have as a child agency. You know, we have putting someone, if it is a child or even an adult by side, without giving him or her the possibility of reintegration uh, is a concern. Huh? and especially for children. Um, As I said before, uh, there are circumstances that are making uh, a child to become an offender. And so, you know, instead of uh, treating the case uh, by the child, we should treat the uh, environment and treat the, uh, the root causes. And as you know, we are still in South Sudan over 2 million children that are out of school. And we have still 
a high rate of uh, early marriage. We have still a lot of violences in the families. But all this is due mostly to poverty. You know, we are in a very young country uh, that is existing since 2011. The state structures are still uh, being built. The social uh, system is also just at the beginning. So there is a lot of investment that is required. And we are working on that with the government. And as you know as well, uh, we are coming out of a over one decade uh, conflict. So just uh, in February, all the armed groups came together to uh, agree on not recruiting any more children. And so, you know, it's a process. And we are in this process helping, supporting, but not alone, uh, also with our colleagues from the UN mission in South Sudan, also with the other UN agencies and the other donors. Uh, we are supporting the government to go step by step forward to have a better country fit for children. And lastly, is UNICEF ensuring that released minors still receive support even after they have been released? For instance, uh, psychosocial support? Yes, you know, uh, children need this psychosocial support. They need to have uh, to, to have more well-being uh, within their life. Uh, but for sure, uh, it's still difficult. Huh? We have trained many uh, social workers in psychosocial support, but still uh, it is required that the government himself uh, is hiring uh, more social workers and also more female uh, social workers so that uh, step by step, we build a social workforce uh, that is able to treat all these issues, these difficult issues. You know, half of the population is uh, is under 18, and so there is uh, still a lot to do. And we are here uh, to support the government in that sense. All right, John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, have a peaceful evening. You too. And that was Jean Libby, Chief of Child Protection at the United Nations Children's Fund Office in South Sudan. The time is now 17.46 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the economics desk. Here is Nosile Zuma with the latest. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. The World Health Organization in Africa says it's concerned the shrinking of the continent's economy might have the rollout of universal health care in Africa. The current coronavirus pandemic is expected to hit countries hard, reducing GDPs significantly. Africa is expected to see negative growth due to the lockdown in closed business sectors. WHO Afro Director Tidimwede says they are worried the gains made to implement UHC such as South Africa's NHI may be reversed by impact of the COVID-19 outbreak. 
we hope will the health sector which is sometimes viewed as a, a kind of soft sector and not a productive sector then to be disadvantaged in terms of investment we hope the governments have understood very well that investing in health is a smart investment in human capital and it's essential for economic development to progress but these are some of the concerns that that we would have the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, Prasa, has indicated that it does not have enough money to obtain enough personal protective equipment or PPEs for all its employees coming back to work. Prasa says it has approached the Transport Department for funding in order to obtain more PPEs. The company says employees that are currently at work, such as security and cleaning personnel, do have personal protective equipment. Prasa has reported a total revenue loss of over over $40 million for the year as a result of the national lockdown. Almost $10 million was lost in June, one month from April to May 2020. Process Administrator Bongisi Zimbondo elaborates. Where we still have uh, some challenges and we have indicated and presented to, to the department is as we resume services, you know, the more employees that we need to uh, on board, at least to get back on, on into, into operations, and that has been a delay, you know, of two, two on two fronts. One, it relates to, um, you know, this, this, our struggle to get the PPE, but also, you know, our financial situation uh, makes it difficult, and therefore, and that's why we've sent a request to the DOT for the balance uh, to cover those that we would not be able to provide PPEs on. The Department of Employment and Labor of South Africa says it has so far paid about $483 million to employers for their employees in response to the national lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. The COVID-19 UIF benefit is a short-term relief to workers who have either lost their income or have been temporarily laid off during the lockdown. Presenting the department's annual performance plan for the current financial year, in Parliament, Minister Tulasi Ngisi says they are anticipating Participating an increase in numbers of claims and are strengthening the system. That we've already paid nine billion of COVID test benefits, which we've distributed to the employers and the bargaining council, just as a by the way. And the CF similarly the is strengthening its systems in anticipation of the increased claims as the virus spreads through uh, the workplace. Tulas Nglesi says it is important for the country to start preparing for job creation post-COVID-19. Nglesi says whilst the immediate priority is to combat the coronavirus, citizens cannot turn a blind eye on what lies ahead after the pandemic. Let's use the current crisis as an opportunity to prepare for post-COVID-19 future, which takes us beyond the immediate challenges to start to imagine a better world where we definitely defeat corruption, unemployment, poverty and inequality. We dare not lose hope at this time. Even COVID-19 will. And the United Nations Food Agency says world food prices fell for a third consecutive month in April, hit by economic and logistical impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The Food and Agriculture Organization FAO Food Price Index, which measures monthly changes for a basket of cereals, all seeds, dairy products, meat and sugar, averaged 165.5 points last month, down to 3.4% on March. The FAO Sugar Price Index fell to a 13-year low 
plunging 14.6% from March, with the coronavirus crisis hitting demand and tumbling crude oil prices, also reducing the need of sugarcane to produce ethanol. For your financial indicators... The U.S. dollar is trading at 388.87 Nigerian Nara, 11.97 Buzonabula, 105 Kenyan Shilling and 17.99 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you is trading at 5.63 Brazilian Rule, 74.16 Russian Rule, 75.16 Indian Rupee. 7.11 Chinese Yuan and at 18.60 South African rands. The US dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 92 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,689 and platinum at $757 per ounce. And the price of brand crude oil is $29.88 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosile Zuma. Three quarters of South African consumers, or 75%, say they are now using contactless payments, citing safety and cleanliness as key drivers. Consumer polling by MasterCard, studying changing consumer behaviors in 19 countries around the world, paints a picture of accelerated and sustained contactless contactless, uh, adoption. South Africa, like many countries across the world fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, imposed necessary restrictions on social distancing in order to reduce the spread of the coronavirus. Since then, the way of living has dramatically changed with a move to a more safer and cleaner way, whether it's when shopping or using public transport. Mark Elliott, Division President for MasterCard Southern Africa, has more. A contactless payment is effectively where uh, you have a, a debit card or a credit card and you tap as you go, right? So you um, you tap the card um, on the on the point of sale terminal, um, and you know you don't have to enter in your PIN number or anything like that. And the transaction is authenticated by your bank. It's accepted by the merchant, and uh, it proceeds. So it's a it's a very quick interaction. Um, it's for transactions which are below five hundred rand. Um, so um, there's a cap, um, and what we see is that the transaction that it's a it's a very interesting transaction if you think about in multi-lane retail, mm-hmm. um, because obviously what it means is that customers can move more quickly through the through the queuing system. You know, rather than you know putting their card into the point of sale machine, swinging the card around to the customer, you know, putting in your PIN, looking at everything. Uh, go through and then handing the card back to the customer. So it just alleviates a lot of those um, handoffs um, and also is a quicker experience. Mm-hmm. There has been a rise in contactless payments, especially during the, this time of social distancing. Maybe you just can give us the figures of uh, people that are actually um, the number of people or the percentage thereof of people that are now uh, using this method of payment. Sure. So, um, what we saw from our research was that uh, 44% of South Africa respondents are saying that they've reduced the use of cash. 20% have not used cash at all since the pandemic began. Um, 
seeing is that um, you know that uh, 75% of South African consumers are actually using contactless payments, um, and of those using contactless. 71% is through the card, 45% is actually a mobile telephone, so tap, tap and go with a mobile telephone, um, and then 8% is using wearables, so that's things like Garmin, Fitbit, and this kind of thing. And uh, there's always been fears, I think, concerns of people working around with cash. Um, do you think that this is actually addressing those uh, fears that people always had with regards to this? Sure. So I think uh, there's a there's a fear of cash because um, you know it's it's got a huge cost to the economy. It's about a one and a half percent of GDP. Uh, it's the convenience of not needing to go to an ATM, you know, which is inconvenient, etc. So there's there's um, there is this opportunity to use use electronic payments and avoid some of those those costs and inconveniences. Um, also, it's safer uh, because you. You know, if you're sitting in a taxi, it's, you know, or, you know, you're out and about, then it's easy to lose money. Whereas, you know, if it's on a card, then it's it's protected. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that can be used. Mm-hmm. And there's also been a, a rise in contactless payments globally. It's not just a South African phenomenon. Absolutely. So um, there's been a tremendous uh, rise in uh, contactless payments. Um, and I think this is... This is really to do with uh, the fact that, um, you know, globally, eight, eight out of 10 people, 79% of people around the world are now using some form of contactless payments. So it's really a global phenomenon. And the reason for that is around safety, as we've talked about, but also around cleanliness. It's a, it's a cleaner way to pay, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the benefits of actually going contactless? We know what benefits have uh, consumers realized in terms of going contactless? Well, I think most recently, uh, you know, you don't have to hand your card over to somebody. What we're seeing is that people are actually wiping down with sanitary wipes. They're wiping down their uh, cards in, uh, you know, retailers. And so, obviously, if you don't hand over your card because you retain possession of it when you tap, then there's no need to wipe down the card. So you're not passing germs from one person to another. So I think that's really interesting as a customer behavior. Also, what we're seeing is that uh, people are, um, if they've got a wallet and they've got maybe a couple of cards in there, if they've got a contactless card and a non-contactless card, then they may say, you know what, I'm going to use the contactless one because you know, I can have that kind of cleaner way to pay rather than the other experience where I have to hand over the card and it gets a bit, you know, there's a risk there. So there's some interesting customer behavioral changes which we're witnessing at the moment. And obviously people right now, the world is just, when we speak, our reference is based on the pandemic, on post-COVID-19, on how we are going to move forward, how life is going to change post the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think contactless is here to, uh, contactless Payments is here to stay uh, moving forward. I have no doubt. Um, so um, you know, we 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 wait in every country um, for a tipping point once we have readied the ecosystem. So obviously, we have to have contactless cards in the market, um, which uh, you know we now nearly have. And we also have to have terminals which can accept contactless payments. 
Um, but then, you know, we, we, we have countries around the world where 90% of all payments are contactless payments. I mean, believe it or not. time for us to close it off this hour be sure to join us again from 1900 hours central african time for more news from an african perspective right now though taking us to the top of the hour uh it's uh, just some information about how you can actually get in contact with us info at channelafrica.co.za is our email address and at channel africa one on twitter and plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven uh, on whatsapp be sure to get in contact with us we'll see you again later